We have a near-death experience, Jack Gregory. Here he comes. Is uh, Jack W. Gregory. Back in 2015, I had a, a near-death experience, which we'll, we'll go into in a little while, uh, which helped me change my whole life around. I died uh, for four minutes. Um, and in that four minutes, I went to hell. It felt like months that I was there, but it was four minutes. Um, I was forced to watch certain parts of my life over and over again. Um, and when I was brought back, that kind of spilled into my mentality and I had a complete and utter um, mental, psychological, spiritual breakdown and I became convinced that I'd caused the end of the world. It was, I, I had this overwhelming feeling that I was being judged for every action, for every decision that I'd taken. Um, and it did, it, it made me look at every part of my life that I'd ever lived, every crime that I'd ever committed, every sin that I'd ever done, every person that I'd ever hurt, every lie that I'd ever told. Um, you know, it all came just hurling at me and I was just, it, it was like I was in a, a darkened prison and it, it was a, a really dark time for me. It, it, um, it changed me in so many different ways. The man I am now is not the man that I was when I went into that hospital. And that man that I was when I went into hospital had changed quite a lot from the man I was when he was a homeless addict, um, you know, he, you know, that man had been changed by God. And I always say God did surgery on me that night because I woke up at four minutes past 12 on the 27th of June, 2014. Yeah, that's where I was being abused sexually by some of the adults in the system, some of the teachers and uh, um, I guess social workers. Um, and they would say to me, um, if you ever tell anybody, no one will ever believe you because everybody knows you to be a liar. I never thought I would get to share my own voice on programs like this. Um, and educate by using my story. Um, it's been a gift from God uh, and talk a little bit about how to deal with trauma. Yes, um, the first thing that you have to realize is the trauma that you are living, whatever that trauma is, it doesn't belong to you. We t it's caused by other people and we take it on because it is caused by other people, places and situations. 
but it's not ours to begin with. So we we take it on and we feel it deeply and you know spiritually and everything and it becomes part of our core. It becomes a part of who we are. But you have to realise that there are there are three stages. Um, victim, survivor. Some people never ever leave being a victim. Um, some people do, but you know a lot. Of, you know, will stay in that life or that mentality. From victim to survivor. A survivor is a lifestyle of itself. I call myself a survivor. Many people within this lifestyle call themselves survivor. But we stay there. Many people just stay there as a survivor. And we live as a survivor. We live on instinct and things like that. What people don't realise is there's a third option, there's a third thing that we become if we allow it and if we work at it, and that's a thriver. We learn to thrive in the situations. So being a survivor, we learn how to deal with the situations. But being a thriver, we learn how to move on. And we learn that these things like trauma and guilt and grief and shame they're all tied to who we were and not who we are now we're not meant to live off those um those feelings those emotions um you know they're they are part of becoming a survivor but being a thriver and carrying the message to other people, which is what I'm doing now, we have to look at forgiveness. And we have to realise that's not for other people. We have to forgive ourselves, but we have to forgive other people that have, we feel that have wronged us or that have wronged us because it's not for them, it's for us because um, being like that it's like unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die it's not going to happen you know god god doesn't want us to sit there and and feel sorry for ourselves and he doesn't want us to sit there and, and, and you know and just be selfish he, he doesn't want us to be victims he doesn't want us to be survivors he wants us to be thrivers um, and we have to realise that and to do that it takes a lot of work a lot of hard work but it's worth it I pray often every day several times a day I meditate on God's word um, I read the Bible I listen to other people that know the Bible a lot better than I do uh, there's a great app called uh, U version, which is a Bible, but it also has 
um, people reading, so you can listen to it read. Um, and then it has explanations and footnotes, and it will explain verses. I do what's called soaking, which is um, just finding a comfortable place, uh, putting on some music, and just sitting there with eyes closed, meditating on on God's word and on how this music uh, is making me feel, you know, worship music or whatever, um, and just really soak in um, what God has to say. Um, I pray for things like prophecy and I meditate on things like that uh, and words of knowledge and that um, we need to realise who we are and that is the princes and princesses of heaven. You know, we are the rightful heirs to heaven. Um, and praying to things like that and praying for other people and praying for healing um, and just I'm not part of a prayer ministry team um, so we, we do a lot of prayer, healing prayer um, and I've had a lot of prayer for, my, for healing for myself and I've been healed of a lot of things I still have some things that are wrong with my body but my mind is probably sharper than it's ever been um, because I read God's word I listen to God's word but I also um, learn things like um, emotional and spiritual intelligence you know if, if you pray for something don't be surprised if you get it you know, because often we pray for things and we get it. Um, but when we get it, we get it in abundance. And when we get it in abundance, we go, come on, God, you're giving me to... What are you doing? And he's like, well, you prayed for that. You asked for that. I gave you it. You know, never be afraid to pray. Never be embarrassed to pray. Prayer, no matter what your faith, your religion, your lack of faith. It's an amazing tool um, to help you get in the right state of mind. Because life isn't easy. There are people that get in your way. There are ideas that get in your way. You get in your own way. Prayer is empowering prayer is humbling prayer is power it's real power because I've always struggled with kind of guilt um, survivor's guilt I guess um, and I know that the life that I've lived has been a lot to do with the trauma um, and a lot of it was trauma bonding I was bonded to the trauma and it was undealt with um, so this is why I had breakdown upon breakdown upon breakdown um, you know I, I found myself in a food bank a few months before 
I met a lovely lady who gave me a smile and a cup of coffee and she, despite being told not to, she brought me tobacco and food. Um, we got married in 2019. Um, you know, uh, the life that I have now is completely polar opposite to the life I had back then because in this past nine years of sobriety but eight years of working with my trauma I no longer have that survivor's guilt um, I'm able to look at these traumas um, as I said I, I, I had a lot of mental health issues that came from feeling rejected. I was told on my eighth birthday by my mother that um, she loved me very much, but I wasn't her real son and that I was adopted. Um, and then that fueled this lifelong search for identity and I never knew who I was. It's only in this past few years that I've been able to learn who I am as a as a person, as a father, as a husband, as uh, as a Christian, as a child of God, as uh, an addict in recovery. Um, who I am deeper, more than just my name, um, because everything else was kind of superficial um, and because of the rejection that I'd suffered um, and I don't blame my parents I love them to bits I really do um, and I'm working at rebuilding a relationship with them which is great um, and I had a relationship with my real mum for a while before she died um, but I the path that I took was because I didn't know who I was I kind of broke so I started making up these I always had a good imagination so I started making up these stories telling these lies about who I was where I'd been stupid little things um, and I just that opened me up to ridicule, that opened me up to bullying. I was bullied by the kids in my neighbourhood. I really didn't have any friends. The only thing I had in life was films, which is why you see a lot behind me now. I have a deep affinity with film. Uh, you know, I get really emotional doing these sometimes, talking, you know, bringing up things about my past. But I know that if you've lived a certain way of life, it is your responsibility to educate. I've always said if you can teach, teach. If you can't teach, learn to teach. Because this generation needs emotionally intelligent people it needs wisdom of lived experience 
to be able to help them carry that on into the, the next generation. Um, and, you know, there are people out there that are fighting a fight and sometimes it feels like we're shouting at a brick wall. Um, I'm very blessed and lucky to be able to get to speak to people like yourself um, and travel all around the world without leaving my home, um, which is absolutely fantastic. I never in my wildest dreams believed that this would ever happen, um, but it has. Um, I've become something different. Um, I'm still not there yet. I still don't know where this is taking me. It's um, it's still a continuing journey. You know, in, in sobriety, I've written three books, applied for another two books. I've um, acted and consulted on several international TV programs. I acted and consulted um, for two Martin Scorsese-funded films, uh, the Souvenir films uh, that were filmed here in England. Um, and yeah, I, I get to talk about some of the things that brought me here. Um, because I never, ever thought I would live to see this age, never mind do what I've done. Yeah, I want to thank everybody um, who's tuned in for this, for bearing with me um, and tuning in. I realise that I sometimes go on, <laughs> but it's an absolute real pleasure to be able to share my story um, with you. Um, because I believe that we need to learn. We all need to learn. We all need to educate ourselves and we need to educate others. So thank you so much for bearing with me. Thank you for listening um, to me through my waffling. Um, and tune in next time. Our next near-death experience is Preacher's daughter dies in car wreck. The afterlife was not, was she? Not possible. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see into your kingdom, into your glory. Help us to be of service, Lord, as we heard that man that had a seizure. Lord, help us to be valuable and learn and teach and be all that you call us to be. This is a great world, Lord, and we thank you for the love. We're grateful for all the goodness and all the beauty that you have brought into our lives. Thank you for the wonderful supply of life, Lord, and help us to help others and, and enjoy the process in the mighty name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when all of God's people say, Amen, Amen, get excited about this. We are alive and well. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Mary Helen Hensley, and uh, greetings from Ireland. Um, as you can see, I'm in my office. I've just finished work. I am a chiropractor and a metaphysician, author of 10 books. Um, and I'm really excited to be here with you to tell a story that, in my case, is just never gets old. 
Um, so I'd like to share with you something that happened to me many, many moons ago and the impact that it's had on my life. Um, in December of 1991, 91 it was, um, it was December 14th. I was on my way to a Christmas party and little did I know, you know, I was just a new college graduate. I was living in my boyfriend's hometown. I was starting my new life after four years in college. And I was coming up to a traffic intersection um, about a mile from my apartment. And what I didn't realize was that I was approaching the metaphysical and metaphorical crossroads of my life. So um, I sat at this light and I waited um, for my light to turn green. And this was quite a large highway. It was Highway 17 in Charleston, South Carolina. So there's lots of lanes coming this way, lots of lanes going this way into town. And so I was sitting here and I was going to be going across the traffic and hanging a left um, on my way to this Christmas party. So, you know, I was decked out. I was wearing bright red Bermuda shorts and a Santa Claus t-shirt, a lovely Swarovski jingle bell around my neck that my mother had given me. So I was just like, feeling good. You know, it's hot in South Carolina, even in December. So um, there I was, I sat and sat and sat, and then all of a sudden my light turned. And so I began to make my way across traffic and I made it across that first lane, that second lane, and then into that third lane. And then all of a sudden I looked and the car that was coming towards the light had absolutely no intention of stopping. The police estimated um, after the accident, based on the uh, damage to the car, that this man had been going 75 miles an hour. So I had what they call a T-bone um, impact, which is the car hits directly into the driver's side and T-bones the car around the car that makes the impact. Um, so it was just myself sitting in a little Toyota Corolla, and um, this is when everything changed in my life. I grew up in the Bible Belt in Virginia, and I was a preacher's daughter. And absolutely everything that I had been taught to believe that would happen upon my death. Remember, I'm only 21 years old, so it's not really something you sit around thinking about a lot. Um, <clears throat> but everything I've been taught to believe did not happen. It happened in a completely different way, which is what makes it so special and unique to me, really authentic. Um, because it was something that unfolded organically and naturally as opposed to it being some kind of projection of, of something I had been told or taught to believe. So um, what was really fascinating was in this moment when I looked and I realized that I was getting ready to get um, hit by this car, I just had this overwhelming knowing that I was getting ready to die. And there was absolutely no panic, there was no fear. It was just like, oh, okay, here we go. It's time to go. Um, and what was fascinating at this point was that there was a sound. I live in Ireland, like I said, and I play Irish, uh, traditional Irish music. I'm a Bowron player, which is the round drum, you know, you hit with the little tipper. And um, so my favorite instrument is to play with uh, the Ilian pipes. Ilian means elbow in Irish. And so when they fill up the pipes, it makes this amazing drone that I find just so beautiful. And that's the only thing I can liken this sound to. At that stage, there was this drone, it was beautiful. I have since come to realize many years later, 
um, that that vibration was the frequency that was keeping me tethered to the earth plane, keeping me tethered to the physical experience, the corporal experience um, in this body is Mary Helen. And so um, as this sound was playing, everything ground to a halt. And so the cars were coming at a snail's pace, like you could barely even tell they were moving. And I had all the time in the world to decide, okay, how are you going to play this kid? Which was, I thought was really, really interesting because all of a sudden it was like I was in control. It's like I was directing the scene of how my death as Mary Helen was going to play out, which is kind of cool when you think about it. So I, I, I kind of weighed my options and I was like, well, you know, I could stay inside the body, experience that impact and then go, or I could leave the body and then the impact takes place and I don't have to feel anything. Well, obviously, you know, option B sounds much more exciting. Um, so that's exactly what I did. I, me, the real I am made a choice. And it was in that moment that I totally realized, oh, I'm not this body. Hear me again when I say that. You're not that body, that meat suit, that, that fabulous vehicle that you're traveling around with. That's not who you really are. And a lot of people are like, ah, I know this. But when you approach a moment like this and you separate from the suit and you're watching your death unfold, it brings it to a whole new light, let me tell you. Um, I'll, I'll never be the same for having seen it. But um, I made a decision in that moment that I was gonna exit. And so once the decision was made, it was like, whoop, everything sped up and that car came barreling towards, and now I'm up and out of the body and I'm looking down and I get to witness my own death. I see this car smash into the side of my car it T-bones and, um, you know, I see my body, I'm buckled in and I see my head go through the driver's side window, which is at the point where my neck broke and the seat folding up underneath me. And, you know, I had my little tan legs and my Bermuda shorts and there was glass everywhere and I could just watch. I could see the shattered glass sticking into my legs and I could see that seat folding underneath me. And to me, from that bird's eye view, I look like a little puppet. I was just kind of hanging there caught by the seat belt. The neck was laying completely over. It just looked so odd because I didn't realize it was broken. Um, nor did I care. This is where it gets really fun. So I'm kind of watching this with this detached interest. And I like to add in at this stage of the explanation because it helps people really sink their teeth into what it's like. Imagine if you were outside and you were working in the lawn, you were mowing the grass or um, you've been playing sports or doing whatever. You were really hot and sweaty and sticky and nasty and gross. And you come in the back door of your house and you peel off those dirty clothes and you throw them down by the washing machine. And then you go have the best shower ever. While you're in that shower, the very last thing that you're thinking about is those clothes down by the washing machine. And that's what it's like leaving the body. At least it wasn't my experience. I wasn't pining away. I wasn't going, oh my God, I'm only 21. Um, it just wasn't like that. I just was like, oh, okay, well, this round is done. And here I am and I'm in this space and I'm going, oh, okay, I recognize this. This feels familiar. What was really interesting in that moment was I looked from where I had been uh, coming across the traffic and I realized once all the cars had stopped, a girl that I went to college with, um, she was actually my sweet mate in college, had been a couple of cars behind me. Now, Charleston's a big city. And so the coinkydink that she would have been in the car, a couple of cars behind me, 
was really fascinating because outside and detached from the physical, I got to watch her recognize me, recognize my car, realize that I'm dead, watch her reacting to this. It was wild, guys. I got to actually feel, I could just feel all of the emotions. And, you know, there's this part of you that's just, you're just soaking it in, experiencing. You're like, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. Relax. Everything's okay. And, um, you know, so I had that crazy experience. And then I got to watch um, a man in uniform come over to the passenger side of the car and the windows had all blown out. And so he reached across and he turned the ignition off so the engine wouldn't blow. And so it was at that stage that that sound changed. And all of a sudden it began to speed up. And this is, I can only call it the music of the spheres, the, you know, the symphony of the stars. It was just, I've never heard anything like it. And trust me, I've been looking. I've never heard anything like it ever since. Um, it was the most beautiful symphony. Have you ever had a piece of music that you absolutely love and it just sends you to another place? Okay, well, picture that on steroids times a billion. Um, it's kind of like that. And it's just this amazing energy and frequency that's coursing through everything that you are. And so at this stage, I realize that this is where a lot of people who have an NDE talk about going through the tunnel of light. And all. I didn't have that experience at all. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I did because I didn't. It was like I was here one second and then I was here. So if this tunnel happened, I missed it. It was so fast or it was so not necessary for my experience or whatever. It just didn't happen there. I was here one second, and then I was here in the next. And in this space, what was so incredibly cool is I was now resonating at a different frequency. That music had lifted me up into a totally different vibe. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, gosh, I have form. I know who I am, but I didn't have a body. How do you describe that? I guess it's like a you know somebody loses an arm, and they've got the phantom arm. It's like, oh, Mary Helen just lost the body. There she was, freshly dead. And uh, I could still feel myself, my presence, my outline, my form. And I could certainly remember who I'd just been. But here's the kicker. All of a sudden, at lightning speed, I could remember everybody else I'd been. Now, from a, pre for, you know, a preacher's daughter from the South, this was not something they ever taught in Sunday school, I can guarantee. And this was certainly never anything I heard from the pulpit. This was brand new for me. This was what was so exciting to me. This is what really, um, I lay awake at night still at the age of 54 thinking about this. It was incredible. I'm so incredibly grateful for that moment, that experience, um, of, of recognition of, oh yeah, oh, this is who I really am. And there was a lot of that, a lot of ahas and a lot of, oh yes, there was no pining. There was no, you know, oh my gosh, I didn't get to do this or I didn't, wasn't like that. It was like in that moment, I remembered I can do any of that one anytime I want to in any form. And um, I just sat in that space and I basked until such time that the atmosphere, which was palpable, by the way, guys, I could like touch it, mold it, shape it. Um, these two beings stepped out of the atmosphere. They took shape and form. As a kid, I had always loved old people and I loved. I loved the old men at the nursing home. I used to go sit with them and sing with them. And I, I actually look back and I think I really liked watching the death process. It's, I've never been afraid of death. 
Um, and as a little kid, I used to love watching the fireworks because when somebody is amping up to leave the, the earthly experience, it's not like a dimmer switch goes on and everything gets dull and lifeless. It's quite the opposite. It's like this magnificent, colorful fireworks display. And it's lot, you know, I think between six and 12 months, I have seen it out. Um, I've never really seen it longer than that. Um, so that fireworks display for me, and I've seen a lot of, of, of people who were going through the death process, guys. Um, so the longest I've ever seen out before the death takes place is about 12 months, typically more like three to six. Um, so I used to like hanging out in those spaces. So when I get into this glorious space of recognition where I'm kind of coming home and returning to my, my true me, the great I am that I really am, of course I'm going to conjure old men because I love them. And that was security for me. That was wisdom. Um, that just, I always respected them. I loved their life experiences. I loved to be told their stories. So that's how they appeared. Did they have to appear like that? No. And who are they? Well, it took me a little while to remember because um, you know, you're sitting in that space and it's like, I know who you are. You ever had somebody's name on the tip of your tongue and you know, you know, you know them. It happens to me in this office all the time. I can see somebody for 20 years in here and I've always seen them in this room, um, in this setting. But then if I run into them in, at aisle nine in the grocery store, what was your name again? It was that sensation. So I'm like looking at these guys going, I know who you are. And they just waited. And I was like, oh my gosh, who are they? Well, finally, the light bulb goes on and I realize that these are my guides, my guardians. Yes, we have them guys. And again, not something we learned in Sunday school, this concept of these beings. And let me tell you, they weren't angels. There were no wings. Um, I'm sure they manifest for different people in different ways. Energetically, these guys looked solid. They looked physical. They were, they were these men and I felt safe in this space. Um, you know, you've just been dead for God's sake and you're coming through this. And so, you know, to be greeted there, what I thought was very interesting was that I wasn't greeted by my family members and, you know, being raised in a Christian household, I wasn't greeted by Jesus. There wasn't this, it, it just wasn't like that. Um, so what actually did happen was they sat and waited for me to recognize them. And when I did, and after we celebrated this glorious homecoming and I realized that these guys in whatever form they've been in had been with me since day dot. You're never, ever, ever, even at your very lowest moment, ever alone. And so when I got to see these guys and, and, and recognize that the next thing that was to happen in this near death experience was the life review. Talk about a game changer y'all. Um, again, this is so complete opposite of anything I've ever been taught to believe or I'd learned growing up. Um, and that's just, I talked to you about it now and I've literally got chills. You know, I was 21 when this happened. I am 54 years old and I can, I can woo myself when I tell the story. It was just so incredible. Um, it was so incredible. You've got absolutely nothing to fear guys. Oh, you just don't. So I'm in this space and it's time for the life review. And all of a sudden, with these two beings that are just like the most loving, non-judgmental, amazing, just natural forms for me to be with, they're there. And all of a sudden, it was like my entire world turned 360. This was incredible. 
because it was at this point that my concept of the space-time continuum just imploded. Because what was happening was, first of all, I'm looking around going, where's, where's the judge? Do you know? Where's God? Because I really had been um, taught to believe gr growing up. You know, we didn't focus on it. My dad wasn't like a holy roller or anything. He was more a sports-oriented um pulpit master he loved he was a football coach and so everybody loved his sermons because they were always sports related um that kind of of dynamic speaker that he was so um but there was always a reverence for you know you need to do this and this and this in order to get here um and so we never really talked about hell or anything like that um <laughs> it was really funny in this moment i'm like looking around and all of a sudden it's like there's all this activity happening around me in 360. And I'm looking and I'm realizing, again, there's no one judging. It's just me and the, and the two beings. They're not judging. And so I grab out a, a thought. I grab out an image. And, you know, this is Mary Helen falling off her bicycle at eight years old. And um, I was coming down the hill and I just got a new... Um, BMX with the banana seat, gold and green. It was fabulous. And I had a kid on the back of the bike that shouldn't have been on there with me. And we were going and out came this dog from nowhere and right into the bike. And we flipped. Now, it just so happened that she and her parents were visiting from Florida to my parents' house. And my parents and her parents had gone out to dinner. So we had to rock up. She broke her arm. I was like road burned from head to toe. It was not a pretty sight, but it was in this moment. I could remember and I could feel and I could see. There was my father who was always my big fan and cheerleader, but he was also very stern. And you know, the state of the two of us, they have to take the girl off to the hospital. And in this moment, I could feel this first ping. And my dad kind of sold me out in that moment because he was so embarrassed that these people's child had been injured at my hand. And it wasn't kind of like, hey, are you okay? It was like, oh my gosh, we are so sorry that she's done this. She shouldn't have been out. She didn't. And there was that first ping and this feeling. And in that moment, in that review, I could feel the feeling. And I was like, oh. But then I could feel his feeling behind it. And I could see why he had done that. It was instantaneous. So, you know, then you, you move forward. I'm getting my first bulldog, Otto von Bismarck. And I had three, one, two, and three. Um, at the age of 11 and I was very excited. It was a huge moment in my life because my dad was our football coach. We were the Martinsville Bulldogs and I now had a real live authentic bulldog called Octobon Bismarck. And I was a proud mother. And so I could feel that moment. I could feel that pride, how much that meant to me to have that dog. I go back to when I'm four years old and my parents sit me down at the kitchen table for the kitchen table talk, which is at age four, um, my, my dad literally couldn't stand it anymore. Um, when my mom had been pregnant with me, she had the German measles and they were called in and they, they were prepared, um, for things not to go well at that stage when it was the late sixties, um, there's no ultrasounds. Um, it just wasn't going to turn out well. Um, cause this was in the first trimester of my mom's pregnancy. So they went home. Of course, what does a preacher do? He prays about it. Well, dad's on his knees and he's praying. And one night, lo and behold, in front of him are these two, what he called celestial beings, which I thought was very interesting for a minister because you would expect someone, a man of the Bible 
to say angel and he couldn't say angel. It's not that he didn't say angel, he couldn't because that's not the image in which they presented themselves. So he goes on to describe what more sounded like some kind of um, interdimensional being. And there were two who came and said, listen, your daughter's gonna be okay. Everything is gonna work out okay. She's gonna be a little different. She's gonna come in with some unusual gifts um, and you need to help her with that. She's chosen you, you've chosen her and you know, just help and help guide her through this. Um, so my father, four years later, can't take it anymore because imagine just waiting all the time. You've been told this, <laughs> these celestial beings. And of course I come in, I'm a girl. Remember no ultrasound. They didn't know. And they had said your daughter. Um, so dad's, you know, rapidly starting to believe. And there were no complications from the German measles. Dad's really rapidly starting to believe. But then he's waiting for the shoe to drop because these guys have said to him, Hey, She's going to have some unusual abilities. Keep your eyes open. You're going to need to help foster this. So imagine what that must have been like. So at age four, I get called into the kitchen table talk and he sits down and my father was a huge man and this big booming voice, big American football player. And he said, sugar, do you know the difference between alive and dead? I'm four. And I was like, um, um, now, imagine if you'd had that conversation with me now in 2023. It would be so easy to describe. It would be like talking to somebody on FaceTime. Like, I'm, I'm doing this via FaceTime, and I know somebody, or, or a Zoom call. Somebody's on the other side, and I know they're a real person. Like, I don't have any doubt whatsoever that I'm talk, talking to any kind of entity or being. It's already, or artificial intelligence. There is a real life flesh and blood human being occupying a meat suit on the other side of this camera, wherever they are. So how easy would that have been for four-year-old little me to try and explain that, um, you know, this is what it was like to talk to people. And the reason that they asked that question was because I would always, always talk about my best friend. And my best friend was my grandfather. This was my mom's dad, Dr. Garland Clark. And he would give us, uh, you know, he'd tell me stories, take me on adventures. He'd read to me um, he, because he was a surgeon. Like I had such a fashion, fascination at an early age with medicine and um, not traditional medicine, but about the mind, body, spirit aspect of how a human body functions. And so um, my parents sit down one day and they go, listen, your grandfather, Judge. Yeah. Well, he's been dead since you were one. And I was like, what does that mean? What does dead mean? Because to me, to little me, you're seeing something that's real, just the same as I know you're on the other side of this watching and that you're real and you're flesh and blood. Judge was real to me in whatever way he was able to project himself and show up for little four-year-old Mary Helen. Uh, but imagine back then in 1973, where your dad's trying trying to filter this through his experience as a, as a Southern Baptist minister. Oh my God. My mom was just like, yay, because it was her father. So she was always just 100% behind it. But yeah, so it was really, um, it was really interesting. So I'm seeing this take place, but what was fascinating was rather than just feeling or waiting for myself to screw up, because there were a lot of those, y'all, um, I'm watching 
And I'm getting to feel the impact of things that I did and said and things that were about me and how they unfolded in other people's lives. I was like, oh, oh, this is what the life review is about. Okay. But what was crazy was because it was all happening simultaneously. I literally, when I went back into my body, had to reinvent everything I knew to be true. Everything. You can't even imagine. Um, you know, you have this idea that time is linear or time marches forward. And I'm like, oh, um, time is concurrent. There are multiple timelines that are happening simultaneously. And so, and so, yes, you can travel in time. And yes, you can be in different places at the same time. It was, oh my gosh. So I've had the, the distinct um, privilege, and it is a privilege. Um, it's a little messed up sometimes. <laughs> I won't lie to you. But it's a privilege overall to come back in here and recognize that this is, this is all happening simultaneously and that those 8 billion plus fractals of the source energy that are here walking around as different people on planet Earth, that we're all just fractals of the same whole. Um, you know, we're having different experiences and we're supposed to. So this crazy uproar that we've got going on where we're trying to make everybody exactly the same, trying to make everybody fair, trying to make everybody nice. That's not what this place is built on. It's built, it's built on a dichotomy of dark and light. Well, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Incarnate somewhere else next time. Hate to tell you because it is perfectly perfect the way that this place is set up. And people have gotten so busy. What did I learn? What's the biggest takeaway from having been dead? It's people are so busy trying to change the schoolhouse. Let's save the environment. Let's do this. Let's say, oh, that's wrong. That's not good. That doesn't fit in my religion. Blah, blah, blah. You know, people are so busy trying to change everything that they don't realize that all of these challenges, all of these beautiful boxes to learn and grow and expand from, they were set up for you to change within them. And if I could give you one thing about being dead and coming back into this beautiful world that we live in is stop trying to change everybody into your way of thinking. Stop trying to change everybody into having experiences that make you feel more comfortable. That's not their job. Do you know, it's not their job. Would you expect for, you know, that it'll be kind and decent for people to be nice? Yeah, but we know by many years of being here on this planet that that's not the, the normal or else everyone would be like that. We try to help and educate and grow, but in reality, what we're here for is for our own growth, for our own learning, for our own understanding. You know, we've just watched the last three years of absolute chaos and craziness. And what's so funny is we watch people become divided and we watch that separation and the finger pointing and all of a sudden the very loving people um, were extraordinarily judgmental towards people who thought differently than they did. Um, Guess what? It was meant to be an opportunity for you to show up. So anytime that you feel a little bit uncomfortable or things aren't going your way, it's not about you changing that scenario as much as it's about you showing up and not letting yourself down. You're being given opportunities every single day with every person who crossed your path, whether it's a spouse, uh, a business partner, a, a child, a parent, um, a, a best friend every single day is offering opportunities. And so that's the big take for me from the near-death experience is that um, you are what you love. What you love is what you give your attention to. Um, you know, it's a, 
a, a version of Emanuel Swedenborg's famous words. And, um, you know, you already are that which you seek. You're not trying to seek out your own divinity. You walked away from that in order to get in here and get dirty and to get be out in the trenches and to learn what it feels to be hurt and to hurt and to be part of that great global mass of, of fractals that actually still come from the same hole. So it's really true. You know, you hurt somebody else, you're not hurting them, you're hurting you. No one can harm who you really are. So it's me, and I want to thank you for coming along my little journey. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been great to be here. My my uh, books and all are available at maryhelenhensley.com and I'm on all social media and, uh, you know, try to get to everybody as I can. And I've got a, a fun little um, project underway right now so I can actually access more people um, in the future. So stay tuned for that. But thank you for, for allowing me to share with you. Um, it doesn't matter how many times I tell this story. I cannot tell you how incredible you are, how incredible we are, and that we came here for all of it. The guts, the glory, the fabulous, the painful, the heartbreaking, the terrifying, the joyful bliss that one can only achieve in the human form. So get out there, take some risks, go have some fun. Because as my dad said, when he was going through his death experience and he had not been able to speak for months and he was in shuffling around the room in the nursing home and he couldn't talk. And my mom and I were sitting in there. It was very late at night and he shuffled over to the bed and he got in and he laid down, which is something he'd never do because he, he the minister who spent his entire life preaching about heaven and, and its glories was terrified to die in those moments. And I was like, hmm. Something strange about that. So anyway, he climbs into the bed and next thing he's giggling like a child and he's reaching up for the ceiling. And clear as day, he looks at my mom and he goes, I can see it, I can see it. Mom and I look at each other and she's like, oh no, is he dying? And I went, no, the fireworks aren't there. He's having an experience. I said, dad, what can you see? And he said, I can see the land beyond the river, sugar. It is more beautiful than anything you ever wrote about. And I was like, yes. And um, so he suddenly gets like a deer in headlights and he just stops and he goes, mama, mama's there. My mom's still looking at me and I'm like, he's not dying just yet. And he goes, she looks so young. And then there was the most profound moment, I think to date besides being dead that I've ever had in my life. My father reaches up his hand and the most difficult relationship he'd ever had in his life was with his own father. He wasn't there for him. He never showed up for him. Um, he did for other members of the family, I think, but you know, everybody has, every child has a different parent. We've all heard that before. And in, in this case, um, at the time my, my dad was growing up, my grandfather had had a, a drinking problem. Um, he had a lot of issues. And so my father had fretted and stressed his entire adult life that my grandfather, his father did not get to go based on the criteria that my father understood was necessary for one to enter heaven. My grandfather didn't get to go. And there he stood. And my father, his tears are pouring down his face. He's worried. My mom and I are just like, what? 
And dad turns around and he looks at my mom and he goes, Helen, I've had it wrong all along. Everybody's welcome here. You can't mess this thing up. And I'll leave you with that. Wow, what a testimony. You can mess this thing up. Praise God for hurts. Praise God for people that are out there that we think are not in the kingdom of God. Just praise them till you don't think about them anymore and you've done your work. That intercession has come through. Let's go ahead and, and pray for the, our loved ones that we know that could be walking with Christ, walking for uh, avoid, avoiding sin. Let's pray for them. Let's pray to our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. <clears throat> Amen. Here's another near-death experience. A man dies, visits afterlife, and learns secrets to overcoming trauma. Here we go. My name is Devin Kramer, and this is my NDE story. So it started in 2017. I was actually out playing with my lab and I came in to make lunch. And so I had gotten some CBD because of the fact that I was dealing with very intense kidney stones and I wanted to get off of pain medication. So I tried something natural. And so I had taken the CBD and within probably about a minute, I felt like something was drastically wrong. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but it felt like my body was completely shutting down on me. And so what I had done is I had reached my phone and I called 911. I had explained to the person on the phone that basically I felt like I had had an adverse reaction to something that I was poisoned. I felt like my body was completely just giving up. And about that time, I dropped the phone and I had collapsed. So the next thing that I know is that I'm standing up and I started walking around my house. And in this state, I felt like everything was completely different. Colors were brighter than I had ever seen them. It was like looking at the sun, except for it didn't hurt your eyes. You, you had no problem doing this. And the other thing that was weird is that time didn't feel like it fit right. It's like I was in time, but also outside of time. In fact, I went around the corner and I looked at the TV and prior to this happening, I was watching the news. And when I looked at the TV this time, it was completely still as if nothing had happened whatsoever, it was just frozen. And so at this point in time, my first thought was actually that a comet or something massive happened and, and everybody died at the same time, everybody was in this state. And about, that I, about the time that I had had that thought, I had another thought that kind of overrode it that was like, no, this is just you. And so in that moment, I felt this intense fear that instantly got washed away by this security, this okayness, and this love. Like, it, it just washed over me that everything was going to be okay. And so at that moment, I sat down in this chair that I had had, and I was ready for whatever was coming next, but I didn't want to do it alone. And at that time, I was actually agoraphobic. I didn't leave my house. I didn't have friends. 
And so my best friend was my lab. And so I called Nova over to me and she came over and she had rest her head on my lap. And I remember petting her and feeling this just so glad that I wasn't alone kind of thing. And about that time, I felt like something was moving towards me very, very quickly. And I just continued petting her. And I don't know if she saw me, I don't know if she heard me, but I knew that she was there with me. And so as I was petting her, I closed my eyes. And about the time that I felt like I was moving towards or into something, all of a sudden I felt this jerk back. And I look up and I've got these EMTs who had come through my front door. They had to, they didn't come through the back, had come through the front door and were trying to get me to open my eyes. They were yelling at me to open my eyes, to speak, to say anything. And, and I couldn't at that time. I remember just looking up, just completely like out of body kind of thing. And so finally I had come around, I started having a little bit of a conversation, but it was a highly traumatic experience for me. And so it took them three hours. Uh, these were some local EMTs in a very small town. It took them three hours of sitting with me to convince me that I was not dead. I was absolutely set on the fact that this wasn't real. And so by the time they finally got me to realize that I was not dead, that I was in this state, they basically let me know that what I had done is I had gotten a hold of some CBD that happened to be laced with something that caused a basically adverse reaction. And it caused me to have a stroke that I didn't actually know until years later because of the fact that whatever was in this ended up doing the exact same thing that happened to me uh, years later. And so at that time, the EMTs had left and I had a family that was now there. And so when I woke up the next morning, my whole entire life had changed. Everything had changed from that point. I was no longer afraid of death. And because of that, I wanted to study. I wanted to understand what had happened to me. Because although they tell me that it was a, a CBD reaction, everything that I experienced in that moment was unbelievable. And there was no book that I could find or anything that actually explained it. So I started expanding and studying everything I could get my hands on. I studied the Kibbeline and the Bible. I studied the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It didn't matter where it came from, the type of knowledge. I studied everything from chakras to frequencies, to Nikola Tesla, quantum physics. I wanted to understand that experience that I had had. And through this process, I actually started doing uh, meditation. And I got to a place where I could actually meditate for 30 minutes and it would feel like it was three hours. And in these meditations, I was receiving so much information. I was receiving mathematical equations and patterns and downloads. And I just kept receiving over and over. In one of these downloads, I had actually received a message that I was going to die at the age of 45. And so at first when I got this message, I didn't really accept it. I didn't really pay that much attention to it, but it continuously kept showing up in my meditations. And so finally I decided to accept it. I figured that the average person isn't really afraid of dying. They're afraid of how they're going to die. So I asked in this meditation how I was going to die. And it told me that I was going to have a brain issue and that I wasn't going to have any pain whatsoever. And so at this point, it kind of changed everything for me. I no longer was afraid of even living. I started facing all of my fears. I faced my agoraphobia, started going out in the world. 
I faced my anxiety and my social anxiety. I faced my depression. I faced basically just being alone uh, and, and basically started making friends. I got a job as a dog trainer. I met my future wife there. I became a leader of a local church. I started working with the homeless on the weekends and I was running bingo on Friday nights for over 200 people for the elderly every single Friday night. My life became about helping people because just fear did not block anything whatsoever for me. And that's when I actually started Nine Vibes Universal, the Facebook page, because I wanted to share my downloads with people. And as I was sharing my downloads, people were basically coming to me with questions. I would go into meditation, I'd receive an answer. And so I just continued that cycle over and over. My life was going so well that I completely forgot about the message that I was gonna die at 45. Until one Sunday morning, I was working at church and I started having this pain in the back of my ear and it continuously got worse and worse. I got exceptionally nauseous. I couldn't see straight and so I was rushed to the ER. And I found out at the ER that I had suffered brain aneurysm. So basically I was the youngest person on the stroke floor and they had ran an MRI and found that I had had a brain aneurysm. But because of the fact that I had gone in because of the fact that I was rushed in, it actually ended up saving my life. And so from that moment on, I was a believer. I started teaching local classes. And then when COVID hit, I started teaching virtual classes. I wanted to help as many people as I could with whatever time I had, because it just didn't matter to me more. I wasn't afraid of death and I wasn't afraid of living. I actually just recently finished a book called Living Aligned by 369 which is a guidebook to mastering your own energy from numerology to chakra core memories to aerokinesis, uh, which is basically just working with energy you can't see, such as, you know, the wind. I basically understood that life is about creating. It's not about being created. And the more that you trust in the universe, the more that the universe responds. And so from my experience at the very, very beginning of having that experience where the CBD was involved to coming full circle to realizing that all of it together was showing me this moment where if I wouldn't have paid attention, I was going to die. And so it saved my life. And for me, that's exactly what a near-death experience is about. Thank you for watching. Rob Gentile. I grew up in a small steel town in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. My parents were Italian immigrants and when I was five years old my father was uh, killed in a steel mill accident. So when he passed away I felt like I had lost my identity. There was just tremendous void in my life and I didn't really know where to go from there. But what had happened to me is that before my father had died, we were in a very, very small two-bedroom house and my other brothers had one bedroom and I was in a crib with my parents. I was laying there one night and all of a sudden came this glowing orb. It was a light that was very unnatural. It wasn't like a light bulb or a light of the moon or anything like that. It was its own kind of light that just seemed to seep through the ceiling. And as it descended, it was this beautiful, just like pulsating, glowing orb. And there I was as a child and I'm laying there watching this. And then all of a sudden it transformed into this hand and this beautiful hand began to just float down slowly and 
it just landed in my hand. I remember in my right hand, and it was almost like I absorbed this kind of energy. And I remember jumping up onto my feet and grabbing the rails of the crib and rattling these things and just laughing and laughing and laughing like with total abandonment, only like a child can do. And I remember my parents waking up and they were probably saying, you know, he's probably having a dream or something and they had gone back to sleep. But after my father passed away, never again would I sleep with my, my hands wide open and open to the world on my back. I would sleep on my stomach with my hands curled tightly under my chest because I felt that that hand, that light that came to me was kind of like the only thing I had left to hold on to. And my life, just like any other child, went on, but I always had this sense of kind of like abandonment and wonder of what that light was that had come to me and where I was headed as a, a young person. And I really was kind of lost, uh, particularly I remember even in my teenage years and throughout high school, I was always kind of like a loner, always in search of myself, wondering what it is that uh, I wanted to become, and I was always very, very curious about that light that I had seen as a child. I was always asking my, my mother questions about God and our existence and why we were here. And then I was married and I had my first child with my wife, Melanie, and at, I think, age 18 months, we realized that there was something wrong with my daughter, Maria. And as time went on and genetic testing became available, we began to realize that she had a very, very rare neurological disorder called Rett syndrome. It's not that these children are retarded, it's that their brain stops wiring at around 18 months old. So Maria presents like she has severe autism, cerebral palsy, she can't feed herself, she's nonverbal, and she still has to walk with great assistance. So. Maria is now 26 years old, and my wife and I have dedicated our lives to trying to, which we still do today, trying to find a cure. The seizures are pretty much under control now, but for years and years and years, we lived with a terrifying seizure disorder that there were sometimes months on end when my wife and I would be living in the hospital the only way that they could stop Maria's seizures were with um, phenobarbital IVs that would literally put her in a coma for days. So it's been a very, very difficult journey through these past 26 years with her. And what happened was at age 56 years old, it was on January 26, 2016, I had been having all of this pain in my neck from sports injuries when I was younger. And it was determined that I had these bone spurs on my neck that were pinching my nerves and giving me all of this pain. So I had got all this testing done and these bone spurs had to come out. So we found a doctor in Pittsburgh who does this special surgery called a foraminal anatomy. And he goes in through the front and he makes this very small cut in the neck and moves the esophagus aside and drills out these bone spurs. It's a very simple surgery. I was only in the hospital for one night. And then my wife drove me back to North Carolina where I live now. But what happened was three nights later in my bed, 
at about 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, I threw a blood clot. And we know now it went right into my widow maker. All of a sudden, my wife is, you know, turning on the lights, trying to figure out what's going on. I'm flopping around in the bed, screaming in pain. And then I passed out from the pain. My wife calls 911, the ambulance arrived. They rushed me to the hospital. Thank goodness the hospital is only like three miles from my house. But on the way, the ambulance driver knew I was having a massive heart attack. He calls it in, they get me into the ER and they bring me into a room. The cardiologist was not in the hospital at the time. So a nurse comes in and they give me uh, whatever the medicines they give you to thin the blood and, and to calm me down. And I'm still unconscious. And the nurse tells my wife, well, it looks like he's stable. So we're okay. Let's just wait for the cardiologist. And the minute she said that, all of a sudden, as my wife described it, it was kind of like uh, a scene from the movie, The Exorcist. It was almost as if somebody had grabbed me by my shirt and just pulled me forward off the gurney. And I sprung forward off the gurney from my waist up and my eyes popped wide open and I screamed out the name Frosty. And then I collapsed backward on the gurney and flatlined. Code blue rang out through the hospital and in rushed this team of doctors. They grabbed my wife and before they took her out of the room, she said to Dr. Patel, the little Indian woman that saved me that night, she said, we have a special needs child and you have to save him because she cannot make it without him and I can't do this alone. So they take my wife out of the room. My wife drops to her knees, began praying out loud to God to save me and they began to work on me. For 20 minutes, I was dead. They did vigorous sternal rubs, multiple paddle shocks. Four times they stuck that needle in my heart and injected epinephrine. They could not get me to come back. But something had compelled Dr. Patel to continue to work on me for some reason. I mean, I'm dead for 20 minutes. She should have called it long ago, you know, should have been brain dead but she continued to work on me and work on me until she obtained a very slight pulse. And when she did that, Dr. Bajwa came in, another doctor who is now a friend of mine, the cardiologist. He did a catheterization up through my thigh. He found the blockage in my Widowmaker, inserted two stints, but it was too late. I had gone into cardiogenic shock. I was intubated and I drifted into a four day coma. The neurologists were coming in and out of my room, my wife tells me, to see if I were brain dead. And my oldest brother drove down from Pittsburgh and he called the local parish priest. The parish priest came, anointed me with oil and ashes in what's called uh, extreme unction. In the Catholic faith, you get that one time to get you prepared to meet God. And so I was given my last rites and on the fourth day, they came to my uh, wife and they said, look, we can't wait any longer. We're gonna take out the tubes and you know, we'll see what we have. He's probably a vegetable, but we'll see what happens. So obviously I started choking and I came out of it. And I remember coming out of recovery, the first person that came into my room was my wife, Melanie. She said I was speaking in this really high pitched voice like a child. And I kept on saying, Melanie, you have to believe me. You have to believe me. 
it was frosty, it was frosty, he came to me. And she said, oh my God, that makes so much sense. She said, tell me exactly what Frosty said to you. And I said, he said to me, I've made a big mess out of things and you have to go back and help clean things up. But tell my family I'm in a good place. She said, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Only my brother could have said that. He was always making a big mess out of things. And she said, you sprang up off the gurney and you screamed out Frosty's name before you flatlined. You had a massive heart attack. You've been out for four days. So to give you a little bit of a backstory, Frosty was my brother-in-law and was going through a very difficult period in his life. He was going through a divorce and he was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house. And unfortunately, seven weeks before I died that night, Frosty had taken his own life his mother had called me, it was about 5.30 in the morning, and she asked me to come to the house to go up into his room and try to find a journal or a note or anything that would explain why he took his own life. So seven times I went up into that room, picking through a rather gruesome scene, and finally I found a journal and I had given it to the family. And, you know, to this day, I wonder if... Frosty had come to me to kind of like prepare me for what was yet to come. It had changed my perception of my religious belief system because being raised Catholic, and I know those rules have changed now, but at the time being raised Catholic, we were taught that taking one's life was a mortal sin. You went straight to hell. But here Frosty came to me just as clearly as I'm speaking to you and told me that he was in a good place. So that was the first time in my life that there was this huge paradigm shift in my belief system. And then the second day that I came out of coma, it was so extraordinary because there I was, my arms were still paralyzed and this beautiful little Indian woman came up to my bed and she said, hey, I'm Dr. Patel and I'm the one that was working on you that night. and." She began to tell me how many times she almost lost me and all the things that she had gone through. And all of a sudden, it got very personal. She began to talk about her father, which I thought was odd. And she began to cry and she was telling me about her father. And she said, you know, Rob, my father and I were extremely close. And all he lived for was to see my first child. But six months before my child was born, my father died suddenly of a brain aneurysm. And she said, you know, I'm a Hindu, I've been always very, very spiritual, and ever since that happened, I've been very bitter, I've kind of lost my sense of spirituality. But seeing you here alive, maybe, just maybe, there's something out there, because you shouldn't be here. And as she was telling me this, it hit me like a ton of bricks, it was like, the puzzle unscrambled and there it was because besides Frosty coming to me, there was another male spirit that had entered the room while she was working on me and I could hear this voice over and over again saying the same thing. Keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him. And then it hit me. It was her father speaking through me, encouraging her to continue to work on me. There's no reason in the world why she should have continued working on me for 20 minutes. I was long gone. 
but something compelled her to keep working on me. It was just this voice, this continuing voice in the background, repeating those same words over and over and over again. And you know, in that moment, I didn't have the courage to tell her that it was her father speaking through me that was the one next to her telling her to continue to try to save me. It was a year later when I had come back and met her in the hospital cafeteria that I told her about that experience. So after I had been released from the hospital, I went immediately, I went into rehab and they had told me that I could not survive without a heart transplant. My heart was completely destroyed. So before I was released from the hospital, they had fitted me in this defibrillator vest that looked like a policeman's uh, bulletproof vest that they would wear. And every time my heart would fail, which was often, of course, this thing would, you know, shock me back to life. You talk about PTSD, right? Because this thing was always shocking me back. And then the other thing that they did to me because my heart was so weak is that they inserted a port in my chest. It was dripping this medicine on my heart every 60 seconds called milrinone. It makes the heart pump, but it starts the clock ticking right away and it wears the heart out very, very fast. But I could not get a heart. Hearts are in short supply. So I went everywhere to try to get a heart. I went everywhere in North Carolina, the clinics here, and what they had to offer me were terrible alternatives. So I was very, very desperate and depressed and I was about to give up. And it turns out that my employer, who I work for, he helped me to get into the University of Chicago Medicine. So going through this whole process of uh, getting a, a heart and going through all of these different tests and I'm getting weaker and weaker and weaker through the process. And I'm about 174 pounds and I had atrophied down to like 132 pounds I was a skeleton of a human being and lo and behold, in the last set of tests, they found out that I had prostate cancer. It was a shock. Dr. Uriel came into my room. He brought like five, six doctors with him because he needed, he needed emotional support, I guess. And he, had, he came into my room and he told me, he said, Rob, I'm sorry, but we found prostate cancer in you and I have to take you off the transplant list. And the only uh, thing that we can do for you now is we're gonna have to take the prostate out and wait like six months to make sure you're cancer free. So once again, I find myself in this position where I'm abandoned by God and I'm not gonna make it. And I never forget, I was in my room and I was on the eighth floor of uh, the University of Chicago Medicine and I had this view of Lake Michigan. It was 10 o'clock at night or something, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this storm whips off, off the lake, and these heavy sheets of rain start slamming against the window and lightning like I've never seen it. And when you're on the eighth floor next to the lake, Lake Michigan, it's like you're, you're in the middle of the ocean, you know? Jesus. So I started to get really scared, and I'm very, very weak, and all of a sudden, it was kind of like this dark entity had entered the room. I felt as if something was trying to weaken me. I was being drugged into this darkness, you know? I was a magnet dragging all of this fear, everything that I ever feared, and every mistake that I had ever made in my life. 
All of these things were flashing before me and I felt myself getting weaker and weaker and weaker. I had had an encounter when I was a child of a boy that had a very deformed face when I was walking through the mall with my mother shopping and I remember meeting this child who had this deformed face from Hood when he was a child and I was face to face with this boy and I remember being so terrified and I couldn't even talk and uh, that boy had felt so bad and his mother grabbed him and pulled him away and, and said, let's just go home. And that memory had haunted me my whole life that I had done something wrong to that little boy. And I remember when that rain and that lightning was, you know, flashing and all of that was going on in that room, it was kind of like a, this little boy's face had kind of like a hologram had pushed through that window and even he was facing me. Look what you had done to me. It was you that made me feel so bad about myself. All those things were happening and raging and all of a sudden my heart had gone into tachycardia. Tachycardia is when the heart goes into this erratic rhythm and the heart already weakened and I was barely alive as it, as it was. And there goes my heart again. You know, it's in this erratic rhythm but I just released myself. I remember crying out, do with me what you will. And in that moment, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. It was inexplicable. I thought to myself, you know, how can this be happening? I found myself inside this timeless place, kind of like this vacuum of sorts. And I think the best way to try to explain this, it's kind of like when you're flying on an airplane, you know, you're, you're looking out an airplane window and it's clear blue sky, you can see everything, but you're really seeing nothing. And that's what it was like. And yet it was as if I was connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it without words. It was almost as if the grains of my being were made of sand, you know, and somebody picked me up and just threw the grains of my being into this wind and scattered me across this infinite, timeless expanse. There I was, standing there, and I could see myself down in my hospital bed in my green hospital gown connected to the heart pump, keeping me alive, with the IV bags coming out of me, and yet at the same time, I could see this hologram of my body standing in the middle of nowhere, in the same hospital gown, but I was, I was whole. And I remember feeling disappointed because I did not see any divine being. My parents didn't come to meet me. I didn't hear any music. There were no angels. But what did happen was God expressed concepts upon me that I wholly understood in that place. Concepts like, I am omnipotent, this is the divine source. I am the power behind all things. This is your real identity. Those were the concepts that were expressed to me. And I knew in that moment that somehow that veil had been pulled back and I was in some kind of place that I call them the ethereal, connected to the vast wisdom of the universe, all of it without words. And this peace came on me that is just inexplicable. And there I was. And it was kind of like communication was 
telepathic and synchronistic. If I wanted to know the answer to anything, all I had to do was think about it. And it was kind of like it was felt and then absorbed. And with each insight revealed, I thought, wow, this is how it works. Of course, it's really, really simple. And it was like these uh, mathematical equations were just hanging all around me. And I thought, the universe, the way it works, it's so elegant and simple. It's only humans that have made it so difficult to understand. And I knew everything in that place. And it was just beautiful to be floating around seeing all of this, you know. And then it's very difficult to explain this piece, but I'm going to try to articulate it. It was then that I became part of and saw this gigantic web made of twinkling lights. The only way that I can explain this web and what it looked like is that it looked like it was made of trillions and trillions of neurons. And this web just seemed to extend out into infinity. And I was part of it. It was made of all of these sparks of light or twinkling lights. And I knew in that moment that each one of these lights that was inside the nucleus represented a life. And I was told in that place that that cork was how God creates. And I knew that God, love, and light were one. And these quarks are the smallest building blocks of matter. And quarks combine to create infinite possibilities in the universe. They could become a tree, a person, a dog, or a planet. And then it hit me. God uses light to create, transform, and heal us. So stripped down to our essence, we're made of light. Everything is made of light. I knew in that place, we're all made of the same stuff, whether it's animate or inanimate objects, we're all connected. We're all one. That was so amazing to me to be connected to everything. And I thought, if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread, illuminating the path for others. And it was there that I realized that loneliness is just an illusion. Even here in the physical temporal world, how can we be lonely when we're connected to everything? But of course, we can't see that in the physical realm. And I began to see nurses coming in and out of patients' rooms. And I found it curious that I was only seeing nurses that I had made negative assumptions about. I had thought that I had evolved past judgment from you know, all the things that I've been through in my life. But there I was seeing these nurses and all of a sudden their lives were shown to me like on multiple television screens. And the lives were being shown to me in a regression of events. I guess the best way to explain this is how a cartoonist makes cartoons. You know, a cartoonist will draw every movement of a character and then flip those pages at high speed to create movement. And that's what it was like. So their lives were going backwards in this regression of events. And every time something happened, like a violent event or abuse or 
a watershed event in their lives, uh, circumstances out of their control, an accident or a bad personal choice, that film would stop for a millisecond to give me a picture of what had happened in that person's life. And I realized that it was painting a portrait of what that person had become and why. And I remember standing there looking at this thinking, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? And then I was giving a life review of my own life, the things that I was most ashamed of and the mistakes that I have made. And let me tell you, having a special needs child and thinking about my own mistakes, heavy burdens, heavy burdens that I had to carry around. There were times in Maria's darkest times where I had prayed for God to take her both for her to stop the suffering and selfishly for, you know, for me and my wife. Um, and these were heavy things that I had to carry around. And then I forgave myself. And in that moment of forgiveness, there came Maria. Here she was, standing in the middle of nowhere. She came out of that web where we were all connected. And she's standing there, perfect and whole. And she had this light coming through her eyes. It's not the kind of light we see in the natural world. It was kind of like that light that I saw in my crib. It was that light that animates all life, that spiritual light. And there she was, standing in the middle of nowhere. She wasn't wringing her hands. She was perfect and whole, beautiful. In the ethereal, there was no language. Like I said, it was kind of like communication. It was kind of like telepathic and synchronistic. And I started having a conversation with her in this unspoken language. And I said to her, Maria, I've never heard your voice. You know, I've, I, I don't know what your personality's like. I've never heard you say, I love you, Daddy. Your mother and I have taken you everywhere to try to find a cure. We don't know what to do for you anymore. When you're suffering, when you're having seizures, I said, just, just tell me what to do. And in that unspoken language, she said three words to me that transformed my life. She said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I cried out in that uh, ethereal space. And I said, uh, I never, I never want to leave this place. cried out into that space, I heard my own voice echo back to me. I never want to leave this place. And it was then that I found myself back in my hospital bed. And there I was laying there in my broken body, trying to remember what happened. I had no pain in the ethereal. I didn't feel anything there except that peace and love and wholeness. But when I came back into my body, it was, I had that sense, of course, I could hear the new pulse pumping my heart and had that, the same old pain and suffering that I had been going through. But when that experience had ended and I was laying there in my bed, trying to grapple with what happened, most of those details that I had remembered in that ethereal space were already leaving me. 
I don't know how by some spiritual osmosis that I knew everything when I was there and then here I am back in my broken atrophied body and I couldn't remember details but I never forget thinking I really don't care now if I get a heart I could care less I wanted to be back there connected to everything in that beautiful love and light of God I wanted to see my daughter whole again and perfect and I could have cared less but I knew too that I was sent back for a reason I had to help get my daughter and, and my wife safely to the other side but when that experience had ended and I was laying there in my bed I remember wondering why this all happened to me you know my life had flashed before me from the time that my father died the glowing orb came to me in the crib Maria's birth having a massive heart attack dying almost making it to transplant all these things happening to me seeing my daughter perfect and whole in the spiritual realm finally convinced that God did exist and there I was and I'm asking myself these questions and much like I heard Frosty's voice and much like I had those imprints of spirit telling me you know those concepts I am omnipotent this is your real identity all those things that were happening to me I had asked the question you know why am I here and there was that voice again I heard one word testify and it was shortly after that that my heart came and I was transplanted I made medical history twice actually I made medical history with the new pulse and I made medical history with creating a new category for men with prostate cancer to get transplanted because what happened was is that eventually my doctor was able to get an exception from the government to transplant me with the agreement that the prostate would be taken out after my heart transplant so I signed the paperwork to get that done and I was transplanted but when you're transplanted you have to live near the hospital for a year because they're responsible for your health you have to have testing almost every week because the heart is very very uh, susceptible to rejection or infection so when I was in Chicago living in that apartment by myself for a year of course my wife would come when she could to visit me but I had gone through this really bad depression because here I was you know back in this physical world this temporal world and I was constantly grappling with the beauty and the love and the light and being connected to everything in that spiritual realm and seeing my daughter perfect and whole and then here I am back in this world and even though I knew I had a mission it was very very difficult for me and I began this process of meditating every morning and trying to metaphorically sort of speak you know climb that ladder back up into the that ethereal place that spiritual realm and become connected to everything and every morning I would fail miserably I would come like crashing down you know and I was getting more and more depressed but one day my boss called me he said hey I want to come over with my pastor this guy pastor man and uh, talk to you so we came over one Sunday and I was uh, I was sitting outside on the porch I'll never forget 
and this um, Chinese man comes running up the porch, you know, he sits down beside me and I felt very safe in that moment because I was able to talk to this man about things that I hadn't been able to talk to anybody about. And I began to tell him that I felt really, really guilty. That was part of my depression. I felt guilty for getting a heart. There were people on my floor that had passed away and didn't get a heart. People younger than me, I didn't want to be here. I wanted to be back in, in that spiritual realm, and yet I knew I had to take care of my family and was going through a very difficult period. And the most important thing I expressed to him was, I told him, I said, you know, Pastor Man, I don't know where I belong. And he said to me, you don't know where you belong because you got too fat having been fed too much in the spiritual realm. And he said, to get skinny again, I want you to give back to God while you're here on earth by serving others and learning to see the divine in everything because you don't have to leave the earth to experience the divine. And it hit me in that moment what he was saying. So after he left, I went for a walk. And when I was younger, I used to walk through the woods when I was jogging and I used to pull leaves off of trees and I would squeeze them, you know, and silly things you do as a child and, you know, say, I want your energy to help me jog longer, you know, and then I would let the leaves go. And I found myself back in that childlike state and I began to pull leaves off of trees and look at the moss and the trees and other people and I began to see that light in everyone like I did in the ethereal began to see that love and light and how we were all connected. And I finally understood that even though it could be difficult here, when we realize that we're all connected and we all come from that same place, that divine love and light of God, we'll find peace within ourselves and peace within our world. And that's how we light up the world. And that's how we deal with living in this physical realm. And I remember thinking that I got to go back to work at some point. And being in the steel industry, I'm in a very conservative business. And even though I knew that I was brought back to testify and some of the doctors I had told about my experience really encouraged me to write the book, I thought all my clients in the steel industry, you know, very conservative, mature industry, they're going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to lose my job. I'm not gonna be able uh, to go back to work, take care of my family, all of this stuff. So for the first year or so, I privately researched all of the things that I had experienced, but then it took me three years to write my book because I wasn't sure that people would believe it and what would my customers think? But curiously, when it was published, and it didn't take long for my clients and company and everyone to find out about it and read it, the exact opposite happened. I remember going to see clients that, you know, I thought were ultra conservative people that would never, ever share an experience with me. But I found people opening up to me and wanting to share experiences with me that they privately had and felt and never were able to really feel comfortable in a trusted space of talking to any, anybody about. So here I found myself 
going to visit clients and you know, they would shut the door and say, hey, Rob, before we talk about business, I got to tell you something. You know, they would shut the door and say, hey, Rob, before we talk about business, I got to tell you something. <laughs> it was really cool to have them tell me about their own personal experiences. And I was astounded to find out how many people have had spiritual experiences that they have tucked away their whole lives and have never felt comfortable talking about. And then, you know, it struck me, why would anybody find this to be something that was out of the ordinary? After all, we're spiritual beings first, having a human experience. And before I had this experience, my faith was um, more like an insurance policy. Hey, I wanted to believe in something just in case, uh, you know, I die and I want to make sure that I go to heaven. But after this experience, now I know. I know my real identity and the real identity of everyone else. I know my identity comes from divine intelligence. It comes from God. I no longer have to be convinced. Now I know the truth. And once you know the truth, you know, the truth is freedom. And my intuition has also, and my empathy, both of those have increased because now that I realize, you know, we all have this uh, intuition. Sometimes we believe in it and then sometimes we don't, we, we doubt. But after understanding how the heart energy works and that when the heart and the brain are kind of like incoherence when they're working together. Our intuition, this gut, whatever you want to call it, is really where the magic happens in our life. It's where the muse comes from. It's where the divine expresses through us. This is where I learned that God both experiences and expresses through us, through creations. It's the only way it can be designed. That's how the divine intelligence experiences life through us, through the creations. And being that we're all one and everything is created from the same recipe, you know, this is how we learn to express through this love and light of this intelligence, this God intelligence that we all come from. This experience stays with me. It's so rich. I mean, this happened seven years ago and it's like it happened yesterday. But there are times because we're human, you know, and there are times that certainly I want to go back to that place. It's difficult. I find myself meditating more and more and trying to connect with that place. And after Pastor Man taught me that you know, there are ways that we can connect with that divine intelligence. One of the most important ways is by serving others, by connecting with nature, by, you know, doing those things. That's, that's how I reconnect. But yes, it's difficult to continue sometimes when we see horrible things happen in the world and we question why these things are happening. You know, how can that be when things are so beautiful and perfect in that ethereal in that spiritual realm. But here's what I've come to understand. This web that I saw, it's a reflection of the light and dark struggle that all of humanity deals with from the beginning of time. So what my experience has taught me is that 
what we do here is a reflection of that spiritual life and vice versa. It's almost as if when I was in that web, there were dark parts of the web that I saw. There were some lights that weren't emanating as bright as others. That's where we're not allowing this love and light of the divine to shine through us. So I used to think that, oh, what are those dark parts of the web? Is that evil or what is that? No, I've come to understand it's just not where we're allowing this, this divine love and light to express through us fully. And God is obvious in life when you understand that it's all about free will and it's a choice. That's why what we do matters. And that's why this reflection, I think, of what we do here is reflected in this web and back. And, you know, that's how it, that's how it works. They work in tandem, I believe, because that's where we see how God is obvious. Because I think that we're all born good and we're all born with a moral compass. And one of the doctors that I'm really good friends with, um, actually the cardiologist that came in that night to save my life, Dr. Bajwa, he's a Sikh. You know, the Sikhs believe that we're all born good. And I believe that because as I researched, there's a chapter in my book entitled All One, because I wanted to, in my quest to, to figure out this common thread that is woven through all world religions, because I had Hindus and Sikhs and Christians and Jews and Muslims and all of these different world religions, they were all part of my journey. And I wanted to know what is it that, you know, binds us all together like the web? What's the common thread that has woven through all of these people? And it's love in its purest form. It's love. And that's why I've come to understand that God is love and light. That's where purpose comes in, in our lives. And we learn purpose by serving others and understanding how we're all connected in this web. But I don't think that unconditional love is easy because you can't let somebody off the hook either. I mean, we have to be responsible for our own actions. That's clear. But we also have to try to understand what it is that has driven that person to do such a bad thing. Just like when I saw those nurses and you know the regression of events in their lives and what had happened was painting a, a portrait of why they had become who they were. And it's very difficult for us on the surface when something tragic happens to look at someone and say, okay, yeah, all right, I understand that these things happen to you in your life, but why did you do this? And those are questions that are still unanswered. Those are difficult things that I certainly don't have the answer for. But if we can learn to be a little more tolerant, I think, and to try to look a little bit deeper into the circumstances of one's life, maybe it'll help us understand and maybe it'll, it'll bring us to a point where it's easier to forgive but certainly that person has to be held accountable for their own actions. I see us going through a very difficult period now in this country. Instead of being pulled together like we were in that web that I saw, 
you know, I see us being now more and more factions breaking off and people becoming more isolated and angry. So there's so much pressure on society here now. But in my opinion, who we really are is divine intelligence being expressed through physical form. We all come from the same place. We come from this place of divine energy. We're all bound together, made from the same stuff. We're all connected. And if we understood that, we can almost accomplish anything, especially together, instead of apart. And that's the message that I received in the web. That's what it was, that we're bound together, connected by this web of God's love and light. And we all come from the same place. And can you imagine the power of that unity, that message of unity, what we can accomplish together on this planet? It's unlimited. So we have to find a way to get there, to save ourselves. calling for August the 8th. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There is no bound of union on earth to compare with the union between a soul that loves me and me. Priceless beyond all earth's imagining is that friendship in the emerging of heart and mind and will of a oneness results that only those who experience it can even dimly realize. Amen. Blessed bond. Let's pray. Jesus, let that beautiful presence be always with us today. Amen. The second. I love to pour my blessings down in rich and choices measure. But like the seed sowing, the ground must be prepared before the seed is dropped in. Yours to prepare the soil, mine to drop the seed, blessing into the prepared soil. Together we share in and joy in the harvest, spend more time in soil preparation. Prayer fertilizes soil. There is much to do in preparation. Lord, help us to be ready for the harvest. We seek thy blessing. Reign your righteousness on us. May the righteousness of God be on us in Jesus' name. Amen. August the 3rd, give every moment. My children, how dear to my heart is the cry of love that asks for all of me, that wishes every action, thought, word, and moment to be mine. How poor the understanding of the one who thinks that money to be used in this good work or that is the great gift to offer. Above all, I desire love, true, warm, childlike love, the trusting, understanding love, and then the gift I prize next is the gift of the moments, of all the moments. I think even when love's impetuous longing to serve me has offered me all life, every day, every hour, I think even then it is a long and not an easy lesson to learn what it means to give me the moments. The little things you plan to do, given up gladly, my suggestion, the little service joyful rendered, see men and all, and then it will be easier to task. This is a priceless time of initiation, but remember that the path of initiation is not all. 
is not for all, but only for those who have felt the sorrow cry of the world that needs a Savior and the tender plea of a Savior who needs followers through whom he can accomplish his great work, a salvation joyfully. His great work of salvation joyfully. Again, I think even when love's impetuous longing to serve me has offered me a life every day, every hour, I think even then it is a long, not even an easy lesson to learn what it means to give me the moments. Amen. Amen. The fourth. My children, you are to do mighty things for me. Glorious and wonders unfold. Life is one glorious whole. Draw into your being more and more this wonderful eternal life. It is the flow of the life eternal through spirit, mind, and body that cleanses, heals, restores, renews you, and passes on from you to others with the same miracle-working power. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, to seek by constant contact to know me more and more. Make me the one abiding presence of your day of which you are conscious all the time. Seek to do less and to accomplish more, to achieve more. Doing is action. Achievement is successful action. Remember the that eternal life that is the only lasting life so that all that is done without being done in the power of my spirit. My life is passing all done in the spirit life is undying. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So eternal life means securing to safely dwell increasingly in the consciousness of that security, that safety. August the 5th. August the 5th. Hour of need. I am your healer, your joy, your Lord, your bid me, your Lord come. Did you know that I am here? With noiseless football, I draw near to you. Your hour of need in the moment of my coming, could you know my love? Could you measure my longing to help? You would know that I need no agonizing pleading. You need is my call. Your need is my call. I am your healer, your joy, your Lord. You bid me, your Lord, did you not know that I am here? With noiseless footfall, I draw near to you. Your hours is need. Your hours of need is the moment of my coming. Could you know my love? Could you measure my longing to help? You sh- would know that I need no agonizing pleading. Your need is my call. Amen. <clears throat> Six. Rest more with me. If I, the Son of God, needed those times in quiet communion with the Father my father, away, alone from noise, from activity, then surely you need them too. And refueling with the Spirit is a need. That dwelling apart, the shutting yourself away in the very secret places of your being, always alone with me. From these times you come forth in power to bless and heal. Seven, all is well. Our Lord, we bless thee and keep us, we beseech thee. All is well. My keeping power is never a fault, but only your realizing of it. 
not whether I can provide a shelter from the storm, but your failure to be sure of the security of that shelter. Every fear, every doubt is a crime against my love. O children, trust, practice daily, many times a day, saying, all is well, all is well, say it with me, say, all is well, say it until you believe it, know it, all is well. Eight, rely on me alone, ask no other help, pay out all in the spirit of trust that more will come to meet your supply. Empty your vessels quickly to ensure a divine supply. So much retained by you, so much the less will be gained from me. It is the law of divine supply to hold back, to retain, implies a fear of the future, a want of trust in me. When you ask me to save you from the sea of poverty and difficulty, you must trust wholly to me. If you do not, and your prayer and faith are genuine, then I must first answer your prayer for help as a rescuer does that of a drowning man who is struggling to save himself. He renders him still more helpless and powerless until he is wholly at the will and mercy of the rescuer. So understand my leading. Trust wholly, trust completely. Empty your vessel, I will fill it. You ask both of you to understand divine supply. It is more difficult lesson for my children to learn. So dependent have they become on material supply, they fail to understand. You must live as I tell you, depend on me. August 9th. Come to me, talk to me, dwell with me, and then you will know my way is a sure way. My path, our safe path. Come very near to me. Dig deep down into the soil of the kingdom. Effort and rest. A union of the two. Effort and rest. 10. O Jesus, guide our footsteps lest we stray. For strain, my children, there is no cure except to keep to, so close to me that nothing, no interest, no temptation, no other can come between us. Sure of that, you can but stay at my side, knowing that as I am the very way itself, nothing can prevent you being in the way, nothing can cause you to stray. I have promised peace, but not leisure. heart rest and comfort, but not pleasure. I have said, in the world you shall have tribulation, so do not feel when the adverse things happen that you have failed or are not being guided. But I have said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So learn of me the overcoming power of one who, though spat upon, scourged, misunderstood, forsaken, crucified, could yet see his works had been affected by these things and cry triumphantly from his cross, it is finished. Not the pain, the mocking, the agony, but his task. Let this thought comfort you. Amid failure, discord, contumely, suffering, even now, my friends, 
and angels be prepared to sound the chorus. It is finished. It is finished. Amen.